0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick.
1: The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies for pulling the wall on us. Faiting and taking on all the plates trick pay control. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succinize and lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get
0: This week, we discussed the potentially dangerous collision of privacy and free speech, mostly happening over in Europe, but potentially impacting around the world. Uh, As someone deeply engaged in a number of both privacy and free speech issues, I find this debate somewhat fascinating even as it's mostly, I think, being ignored or discussed in sometimes misleading ways, uh, thanks in part to some boring, bureaucratic-sounding terms and situations. But in the past few years, there have been a couple of key flare-ups in, in Europe about this issue, starting last year with a ruling in the European Court of Justice on the uh, so-called right to be forgotten that said that search engines need to forget certain links on certain names or certain searches on names if the information contained in those links is considered no longer relevant uh, much more recently the that same court tossed out the so-called EU US safe harbor rules by which american companies were allowed to transfer data out of the EU and back to US uh, back to US servers by following some specific privacy rules and often paying a third party company to review those rules and make sure the companies were actually doing something to, to match the rules, kind of. Um, there was a lot of complexity and nuance, I think, involved in, in both of those decisions and much of the press coverage uh, also ignored much of that nuance, but underlying both of these decisions was the EU's Data Protection Directive, which is supposed to protect the privacy rights of Europeans and important rather importantly that data protection directive is currently being rewritten and it's in a way that could have some pretty massive uh, consequences and impact on how the internet functions going forward and what we think of in terms of free expression on the internet. Anyways, there's a lot to discuss about all this and thankfully, we've got a special guest here today who's been studying these issues and quite involved with them for quite some time. And that is Daphne Keller, who is currently the Director of Intermediary Liability at the Stanford Center for Internet and Society. And prior to that, she was the Associate General Counsel at Google in charge of intermediary liability and free expression. Just recently, she wrote a very useful and important series of blog posts on the Stanford website about this new EU General Data Protection Regulation, or shortened to the GDPR, highlighting some key concerns about the current draft language and what it would mean for both free speech and innovation on the Internet. Based on that, we are going to discuss this issue today with Daphne, along with our usual co-hosts, Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy. So let's start with our guest. (laughs) One of the uh, key points that you made in the the very first blog post on this topic was that it appeared that the draft was mainly written by people who are very focused on sort of the privacy rights issue. um, And that often those people are less familiar, if they're familiar at all, with kind of the free speech implications of that. Um, And so I want to see if you want to sort of elaborate on that point and kind of where the the current draft raises concerns on free speech.
2: Yeah, so the data protection field in Europe is, uh, it's a highly regulated field companies sure. that are processing personal data have agencies overviewing them and they check in with the agencies and you know there are bureaucrats they have relationships with and this is sort of a a world unto itself with a lot of complicated law and the practitioners and, are and, deep in it and and the
0: intent there is basically, it's a privacy issue, right? I mean, they want people to, yes and no, I see. (laughs) Yes and no.
2: I mean, under the European Charter for Fundamental Rights, privacy and data protection are separate rights. And what Americans tend not to understand about data protection is it's a right to control data about you, even if it's not harming you and even if it doesn't cause the privacy harms that we think
0: about. okay. That's, that's actually a really important distinction, one that I probably am very guilty of, of mixing up uh, time and again. So, okay, so, um, all right, so, so then, all right, sorry, continue with with the concerns about the kind of what's happening.
2: Well, I, I guess my, my point about the practitioners is just they're very steeped in this very complex field of law that is hard to ramp up on and mm-hmm. has its own vocabulary. And, you know, coming at it from that angle, I think it would be easy to not recognize and kind of not know the existing law and principles and policy fights that are about online speech and about content. And that's exacerbated by the fact that while the right to be forgotten piece of this legislation was pending, for a long time, a lot of people thought it was just a right to take down your own content Hmm. that you put online. And then after, well, after Costeja, it became clearly a right after the Google right to be forgotten Spain case, it became much more clearly a right to take down third-party content, and that's the way it got implemented, but without a lot more thought and analysis and rewriting.
0: Right, right. So, and, and just for background, for, for people who don't know, the Costeja case, which is what everyone refers to now as the sort of right to be forgotten, was this case where there was an article written about um, this guy who had some financial difficulties, I guess, right? It was some sort of mortgage thing or something in Spain. And it was an article from like the late 90s. And he w- was upset that, that when people searched on his name, that that would come up. I think he tried to get the original article taken down and that didn't work. And then he went and basically argued that it was a data protection issue that Google, when you searched on his name, Google would turn up that result. And so... Um, And if you view that from a data protection angle and you think of Google not as like a search engine just finding what's out there, but uh, um, a a database of information linked to individual names, then you could argue as they did and as the court accepted that it was a data protection issue. And as such, you had the right to control that and could therefore de-link certain no longer relevant content to, to your name, right?
2: yeah and and Google might have to de- delink it as a legal matter, even though the underlying website can keep it
0: up right the, so the, analysis so the, so the ori- right so the original content remains up, and in fact, in in that case, the original content absolutely remains up and um but for searches, you know the, so you have this sort of right to be forgotten, so it doesn't the content doesn't disappear, and the content itself doesn't disappear from Google's database either or Google's index. But if you search on a particular name, it no longer that information is no longer linked to that name. Right? It, it's, it, yeah,
2: ex- exactly. <laughs> and and the court gave Google um, these sort of brand new parameters for figuring out what information did and did not have to be taken down, and the parameters are expressed in a couple of sentence fragments, and they boil down to, is there a public interest in leaving it up without further detail on what that means? So it creates this, you know, vast, complicated new question without precedent and then (laughs) hands it over to a tech company to figure out what it means. Right, Right. I've
3: I've, I've got to, I mean, this is really strange to me. So can you, um, Daphne, can you explain to me what the court's reasoning was, uh, you know, uh, about letting the newspaper leave the article up but forcing Google to take it down? Is it because they view... Google search index as sort of a um, a per user uh, database, like almost each user has their own table or something like that, with a bunch of links that are relevant to them. And so, I don't understand the logic there. Yeah.
2: So there's one answer as a matter of pure data protection law, and then an answer about what policy goal i think they were getting at for as pure data protection law the underlying site was a newspaper it has a bunch of defenses about being journalism that that aren't applicable to google so the analysis is different and and your point about google making pr- profiles quote unquote is is exactly right the the court said you know these websites existed out there on the internet before, but Google came and aggregated them together and said they are all about you, Mr. Costeja, and and so it was Google's activity that created that sort of um, association of the information and the effectively a profile.
3: So essentially, searching on my name generates uh, Google. They see the search results as a Google-generated profile about Hirsch. Exactly. That's right, really and so bizarre. so wow. just
0: in the same sense that that like you know, another company that maybe you do business with, business with would hold a profile of information on you and the data protection directive allows you to control that information in some sense, whether it's like, you know, a credit card company or something like that. They kind of viewed Google in the same sense is mm-hmm. at least the impression that I got. Yeah. Can I, can I uh, ask
3: a hypothetical here? So if, <laughs>
0: if I were to create a, a new company uh,
3: that doesn't run a search engine, but instead I say I am tracking people's reputations, right? And I am a journalist. I'm a newspaper that tracks reputations of, say, business people. I'm assuming this guy was a business guy or something. He wasn't? I think so. Okay, let's say he was a business guy. So if I track the reputations and I maintain an updated story on each user uh, that tracks all the things that they've been doing, good and bad, then uh, could I, would that sort of framing of the same exact data? um, allow me to claim the defenses that the newspapers did to say, like, hey, now it's a news function, like, you know? Pro-
2: probably not. So different uh, member states, different European countries, implement the data protection directive differently, and so the way that journalism defenses work varies. In Sweden, I'm told kind of anyone can go sign up to be a journalist and take advantage of, of those defenses. In a lot of other places, um, the defenses are really narrowly defined to... You know, newspapers who have a relationship with the press regulatory authority. You know, it's it's not a widely available defense. It's also not a one hundred percent defense. There are instances where newspapers have been forced to take things down on a data protection theory.
0: Wow. All right. So so let me jump quickly to to the other sort of key issue, and then then I I want to get to the kind of the draft GD. PR stuff Um, so the other big issue that that people talked about I mentioned the opening is this the EU US safe harbor thing which also sort of became a a, you know a a privacy related issue in that um, the court effectively again based on my understanding of it you know effectively determined that that the problem there was with the the fact that the NSA was accessing this data from the different tech companies whereas Based on its reading of of how uh, data protection issues mattered um, that was you know, basically that violated the uh, the the basics of the eu u s safe harbor saying that you know certain information would be kept private is that is, yeah the
2: <laughs> the safe harbor is dependent on the two countries or the two regions having equivalent protections right. And, you know, the court said that because of NSA surveillance, the U.S. was not, you know, didn't meet that standard and and wasn't eligible for the safe harbor. The sort of, um, I will channel what greater experts than I on that aspect of data protection have said, um, which is that the court didn't look at the surveillance conducted by European governments because it's considered a separate area of law. There, See, but then if you compare weird, it to both right. here, you know it's odd. yeah.
0: Because I mean that was the that was the point that I was going to raise, which is that I mean I, in a lot of cases, European surveillance is just as bad, if not worse, than than NSA surveillance in terms of the restrictions. And like as we speak, right, the UK is debating new surveillance rules that would go way beyond anything that the NSA currently does, and, and yet you know they're they're on the EU side, so um, that that whole thing seems seems kind of odd and and concerning but is a really important thing in terms of uh, it, to some extent like the eu u.s safe harbor which again sounds like super boring and everyone just kind of tunes out the second you start to talk about say it what it is a little bit so people who are yeah. listening can get it. yeah i mean it's basically just says like if you want to if you want to if you're a u.s based company and you want to have like European customers over which you will keep some sort of data and you want to be able to transfer that data out of Europe to your servers in the U S you need to comply with the safe harbor, which says you will have equivalent, uh, data protection rules to what's found in Europe. Right. Is that,
2: that's pretty much it.
0: A- and, and there's a process. And if you're a a U.S. company, you can go through this process. And I've said before, like Techter, we did this. We actually went through the process. And we hired some company and, I think you know, based in Washington D.C., to review our privacy policy, and they forced us to make a few changes. And every year we pay them to review that policy, though I guess we don't have to anymore, <laughs> um, to, to make sure that we could transfer any information on, on European customers um, into the, into the U.S. And um, and you know, it was it's a little bit of a boondoggle and, and a sham because nobody was really enforcing it in any way. And I guess, like, I think the FTC... They're supposed to enforce it. The FTC is supposed to enforce it, but everyone kind of admitted that it was a joke. And so there were lots of people who were really happy that that the the thing got struck down because I think most people realized that it was kind of a joke and it wasn't So widely what is the new regime? <laughs> Good question! I'll give a
2: partial answer to that, which is that data, the safe harbors weren't the one and only way to make data transfer legal. And so I think there's a kind of a scramble underway now for companies to say, okay, if we can't use a safe harbor, can we use the model contract provisions or can we use other... other pieces right. of, of the data transfer authorization. So
3: that the BCRs, uh, whatever they call business uh, corporate rules, or something like that? Uh, I know there's something where if you make it's a related? strict, <laughs> yeah, some strict internal <laughs> but, policy. But, but now,
0: be, because there's confusion, there lawsuits have been started, you know, in, in a few different countries, and basically, I mean, I think it'll be a few years before it all shakes out. Though in the meantime, right? I mean, both the U.S. and and the EU have been trying to sort of. Put in place, you know, rush into place some sort of alternative system to kind of take over. And so I think basically it's it's a little bit confusing. Um, you know, I think smaller companies are just kind of hanging on. <laughs> the larger companies will probably have to fight a couple of lawsuits, and and then you know we'll see where it all shakes out in a couple of years. I think no matter how it um, falls out, though, I think uh, if we have any. One L or two L or three L students in law school right now <laughs> get into this area. Of, area of oh law. Because gosh, it's yeah. going to be hot in the it's, next few years. Yeah, it's not going to, and it's not going to stop.
2: It, it's hot, and it's sort of an interesting. If you think of it in terms of like institutional turf, um, it's an interesting development in who regulates the internet. Yeah. For Europe, you know, if if all data is defined in terms of the personal data components and the rules come from there, that that makes data protection regulator, regulators extremely powerful.
0: Yeah, incredibly powerful and, and often without having the sort of knowledge and experience about all the other issues related to how the internet works and functions and where the innovation came from and, and free speech issues as, as we mentioned at the beginning. Okay. So let's take all that as <laughs> as background and go to the, the the draft rewrite for the for the general data protection regulation, which you have concerns about.
2: I have many concerns about it. <laughs>
0: so let's 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 dive in. What's the let's go prioritize here? What's the biggest concern?
2: Well, let me first say that most people's biggest concern is the the privacy provisions reasonably enough and and mm-hmm. you know both in terms of user privacy and users rights and in terms of the the impact on companies. There are enough people worrying about that. So I sort of set that aside and I'm focusing on the provisions that affect free expression on the internet. Um, I think you know there are four-ish buckets of provisions like that, and I've done a very deep dive on one of them, which is notice and takedown.
0: Okay, so let's let's go in, and, and we've you know we've discussed sort of notice and takedown generally in sort of the copyright sense. Can you just recap it though? Right. So <laughs> for the listeners, not for me. For, I'm I was going to say you know, <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, I mean, notice and takedown. I think I think probably most people listening to this. And most followers of takedown in general should by now know that the basics of notice and takedown, which is in the copyright sense at least, which is that if you see something that you believe is infringing, you send a notice to the service provider. You know, with certain, you know, you follow certain rules, and you say this content is bad, and then the service provider um, has uh, strong incentives to then take that content down to avoid legal liability for themselves. Um, and so that's that's the the basic concept of of notice and takedown and um in in the copyright sense that's how it works in the US um and then in other places Outside of the U.S., uh, there are different regimes that tend to cover things like defamation and and other kinds of content. Well, you're and the U.S. We have the defamation and other things, but not not a notice well, and takedown for defamation. W-
3: but there's intermediary um, immunity. If you, if, there's
0: immunity yeah. from that, right? So, but it, even that if, even if e- there's no takedown requirement, so even if you don't take it down, you still get immunity in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. So, um, but elsewhere, that's not true. So. And
2: in in particular, in Europe. The e-commerce directive creates the intermediary liability laws other than they're implemented differently in different countries, but that spans any kind of legal claim. It's the same for copyright as for defamation, with one weird possible exception, which is data protection. (laughs) There are provisions in both of the regulations saying unclear things about how they affect each other, and there's a strong and widely accepted argument in Europe that if your removal request is based on a data protection claim, like the right to be forgotten, then all those intermediary liability rules
0: are out the window. Mm-hmm. And That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> it, it, uh, if you're, you know, if you run any kind of internet service or or if you're concerned about free speech issues, so so w- why is that a problem? Well, uh, it's a problem because the notice, you know, l- like them or dislike them,
2: the notice and takedown rules um, were. by people thinking about the balance of rights between someone who has a legal claim and a grievance and wants something taken down Mm -hmm. and the person who put it up and has a free expression interest or other users who are looking for it and have an access to information interest. Um, And so... You know, in the U.S., there are procedural rules under the DMCA, like the opportunity for counter notice and penalties for bad faith removal requests that are intended, in theory. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and there's actually just this year, a bunch of civil society groups put together the Manila Principles, which Mm -hmm. is sort of the new gold standard for what the procedural checks and intermediary liability rules ought to be to To protect free expression, but right you know.
0: and so and, and and so just for some background here. I mean, again, I think a lot of people who listen to this probably recognize in the copyright context, we are certainly aware of lots of cases where people use the fact that there's a notice and takedown provision within copyright law to take down all sorts of content that they dislike that has nothing to do with copyright infringement. So, just the fact that there is a tool to take down content becomes very, very tempting if there's content online that you dislike. Um, and you know whether or not it's effective depends on a variety of things. Yeah. But, but it, it's there. It, it gets used for all sorts of things that um, that people just don't want online. And so expanding that provision, and, and again, in some other countries that already does, you do have notice and takedown kind of things for defamatory content or other kinds of content. But expanding that provision and the ability and the tools for a notice and takedown regime um, it, you know, we know that that gets abused and it will likely be abused further if it's, if it's broadened.
3: There, I mean, one of the things you have to think about <clears throat> with the uh, notice and takedown rules is the person who is the content host, whether it's mm-hmm. Google or Facebook or YouTube or whatever... Or Tector Or TechDirt. They have an incentive to really kind of be... Um, Uh, Pretty liberal in terms of taking things down. Right. If if
0: if 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 the way the Because they only have
3: liability if they if they don't take it down.
0: If the way the provisions work is if you take it down, you are free from liability. If you're a very, you know, uh, liability conscious company that that does not Mm -hmm. want to face a lawsuit, uh, and you have certainly plenty of, of lawyers who will say, you know, just take it down. Because that, that's the best way to make sure that you don't have a lawsuit, whether or not you would have an argument that, that the content shouldn't be taken down, you, you know just to avoid the, the issue of liability altogether. The incentives are very strongly to take and, the content down. And it,
3: you would be surprised how liberal uh, these guys are in terms of taking things down based on accusations. I had a client who had an app on an unnamed app store, a very big app store, <laughs> and... Uh, Essentially, uh, he had a disgruntled ex-partner. Essentially, just decide to ruin his his means of livelihood by issuing all these takedowns. Yeah, based and on nothing more than just issuing takedowns.
0: And that and There's that no kind of thing claim all. happens all the time. And and again, you're right. I mean, especially um, you know for you know I think in some cases when you have some of the platforms get bigger and, and um, have people who think about these issues, we've seen more and more will push back on on bad or uh, takedowns, but still tons and tons of perfectly legitimate content gets taken down and and it's concerning when it you know, when you're gonna expand that.
2: And if I can just plug my own work here, I, yeah. <laughs> I have a blog post on the Stanford blog listing all the empirical studies yeah. documenting exactly what you're talking about. One of the early DMCA ones, kind of to your point about a competitor trying to take stuff down, said 50% of the DMCA removals that Google processed from web search were one competitor targeting another competitor. So that's a very real scenario. And then there are all kinds of well-known cases of people trying to take down content they disagree with politically or, you know, content that um, mm-hmm. they disagree with on religious grounds and, and so forth. And, you know, if that's bad for copyright, imagine how much worse it is if all you have to do to state a claim for removal is to say, hey, that's about me.
3: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and, and they already do that. In fact, with copyright stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They say that's a picture of me, therefore it's a data about me, or some, or I have a copyright claim on it, and so I'm right. going to do a DMCA take But But you know, but thankfully,
0: that. copyright law doesn't allow that, and most of those kinds of cases get thrown out. But now, going back to this, the you know the the uh, draft of the GDPR is the possibility that it could then lead to situations where it you could u- do that same thing for information about you. And that could be very, very broad, and you know the expansion of the abuse of, of DMCA takedowns you know could could be uh... So l-
3: let me ask you a question. So these kinds of legislations and, and, and rules don't appear in a vacuum, right? These are usually responses to some um, legitimate concerns, or at least uh, uh, some drummed-up concerns that, that have emerged in the population, or at least amongst the bureaucracy for certain reasons because of certain signals, whether it be news stories or some high-profile cases have happened. So what were the things that that kind of pushed Europe in that direction? Well, why do they even start thinking about these kinds of rules? I mean, we don't have those rules here. Maybe we're contemplating them now just on the fringes, but there's certainly not... A, it's not a debate topic, for example, in the, in, in the presidential election. We don't really, when we're talking about civil liberties, you know, people seem to be more concerned about things like UAVs and drones than they are on data protection. So what what is it in Europe that that has yeah. given them this? Well,
2: I mean, there, there's a, a foundation in always having had much deeper privacy protection and, and more widespread regulation. But then some factors that kind of tipped it over in, in recent years, I think, include concerns about Google and concerns about Facebook and Twitter, feeling like there are these big American tech companies gathering up all kinds of data in ways that people don't necessarily understand and don't like. And, um, I think a lot of people in in Europe are frustrated about that and feel that they've been powerless to, to fix it. Um, and, and so this I think in, in part comes out of that, uh, compounded by the Snowden revelations. You, know, you take that existing situation and then you add on a layer of, and oh, by the way, the American tech companies <laughs> gathering your data are the reason the NSA is snooping on you. And you know, there's a very strong desire to push back on that.
0: Yeah. I,
3: and I don't see the nexus between those two things. The NSA basically snoop, snoops on the information yeah, that's just flying going on the yeah. wires. I mean, they don't need to have it sit. Yes, yes, and no,
0: right? But but so the argument that many people have gone to, and I think it's a little bit misleading, um, is this the, is this idea that you know the NSA wouldn't be able to have all that data if you weren't giving all that data to Google and Facebook and you know and and also obviously in in certain cases where legally obligated to potentially for perfectly good reasons right you know google and facebook and and other tech companies have cooperated with with the nsa when when there's a court order requiring them to do so and so you know, and some of the early reporting on on that was a little misleading as well, in in terms of implying M- more that, than a little, <laughs> yeah, extremely misleading, in, in terms of implying that that those companies then sort of gave sort of full access to the NSA, and that that stoked a lot of fears, and and people, uh, a lot of people, you know, didn't get past that initial misleading reporting yeah. in in assuming that, and and but 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 part of it is that you know that's it's a transparency issue too, where you know individuals realize that they are giving an awful lot of information to these companies and as we've discussed in in previous podcasts you know um, often there's you know there are good reasons why people feel those those trade-offs are valid but when there's confusion and a lack of transparency about what what information is really being collected and what's being done with it that they get really concerned and and those kinds of concerns you know there are plenty of people who are concerned about in the us but i think in europe there's a much bigger concern about it um, just in part because of you know cultural history um, on some of these issues, and also in part because um, they don 't always like American companies <laughs> uh-huh.
1: but but there hasn 't been like any type of event or something or bad something that happened to cause kind of the, the entire culture to really be focusing on that kind. Of?
0: well you could argue that the NSA w- world war 2 <laughs> <laughs> oh that's true <laughs> right i mean um, you know the yeah. the germans ha- had a history of yeah. of uh, collecting the yes uh, an awful lot of uh, mm-hmm. data about citizens and mm-hmm. then doing bad things with it um, and so there are legitimate concerns that when you have an awful lot of data about people now yeah. there are questions about you know the difference between governments collecting data and companies collecting data but some people are arguing mm-hmm. that you know, that, that the line between those two is, um, you know, less and less relevant. And so, um, I
2: I think it's also widely observed and I think it's true that Americans tend to worry more about the government getting our data and Europeans tend to worry more about companies getting data. And I I don't really understand why that happened, um, also given their there. history, which we
3: just talked about. Yeah. It was the governments yeah.
1: doing these things. It wasn't Coca-Cola going around rounding up. Yeah. But is, the is there ways. is there a generational thing too? Like is the youth of Europe equally as concerned about these issues as hmm. kind of, you know.
2: I think I think they might be. Yeah. I I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a generational split. I also think for the right to be forgotten, that reflects a policy impulse that I think a lot of Americans might actually share, which is yeah. the sort of so you have a criminal conviction from twenty years ago. Should mm-hmm. everybody know about it? You know. So you had an embarrassing drunk picture at a party. Should everybody know about it? And I, I suspect at at this table. Uh, m- many of you would answer yes that's <laughs> what freedom of information <laughs> is about yeah. um but you know uh, there's a longstanding I'm, tradition of, of I, laws around that yeah,
0: in Europe I, and i i mean i think there's a there are there are legitimate concerns the question is you know what is the proper remedy to right. those situations but what?
1: but i think in terms of like maybe culturally like you know there's when when you're growing up there's this concept of quote the permanent record whatever that was that was used as kind of like a disciplinary yeah. tactic, right. um, and school. I don't know if that's a, a an American thing. Um, you know, I, I grew up here in the states, so I don't know if if European parents threaten their kids with this so called permanent <laughs> record. Right? Well, we had we
3: had it in India so, for sure.
1: So I mean, maybe yeah. I mean maybe there there is something there in terms of the culture that you know America with our puritanical, judgmental <laughs> we're, we're roots u- or something. We're, we're you know? <laughs> used to
0: the permanent record.
1: <laughs> we're used to the permanent record, and we're we're, used we're a little to being, more comfortable with it. And it's like okay, you know. It's on the record. Uh, a felony <laughs>
3: conviction follows you around for the rest of your life and makes your life very difficult. I mean, that there is definitely a record thing sure, in the United yeah. States. And, and in fact, uh, when, you th- when we talked about the Aaron Schwartz case, remember that he didn't want that felony conviction, which yeah, is why the, he didn't the, take the plea deal. Yeah, um, And so it's a real concern. Um, I, can, I can see the benefits of having a right to be forgotten, but it's it's so difficult to balance it because on the other side of that there is um, things like repeat uh, offenders, in, in cases of fraud, where you see the same people open like w- one fraudulent company or enterprise after another, and it's very hard to track them based on the name of the companies because they change the company names. and It would be really nice if there was a database where you could just check up of a, uh, a, a somebody you're you're about to enter a business deal with to see, hey, you know, what's their reputation?
0: Yeah, and there's you know, the, and, you know, and then there's the argument that like you know, factual information is factual information, and and cutting that off. Seems problematic, and on top of that, the ability to provide more information. So yes, right. I mean, yeah. there are lots of people who mess up when they're when they're young and do something stupid and don't like that, but then can also talk about how they, you know, changed and were rehabilitated. Yeah,
1: and let's talk about that and not be afraid about talking about things that happened in the past. Right, and
0: that's that's easy to
2: say. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I'll, I'll make another pitch in favor of yeah. the of Europe. Um, before I go back to criticizing (laughs) the GDPR. You know, I I think part of what was motivating the court in the Google Right to be Forgotten case was they they said... this content doesn't have to come down from its source. It can still be found by people who look really hard, but we're going to make it not be the very first thing you find very easily from Google. We're going to put a stumbling block or a bump in the road. And th- that seems non-crazy. You, know, the, the, you don't purge it from the archives, but you also don't make it easy to find.
3: But I don't understand how are researchers supposed to find these stories if they don't show up in a search index? That well, they, 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 do, they
0: do show up in... Other search indexes, no, but the, those search indexes <laughs> are in violation because he no, has equalized. No, equal no, I no, 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 no. They don't show up in searches for his name. Yeah, if you did a search, say on you know mortgage. Bankrupts. I forget the exact details of his case, but like mortgage bankruptcy situations in Spain in 1998,
1: you could still. But how find would
3: you know it? that? That's the fact you should be looking for. You'd, well, that that's yeah.
1: that's the difficulty that has been introduced if, if here. If only there were some <laughs> sort of a computer way to make that more efficient.
3: <laughs> if only someone should admit that. <laughs> It, 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 it just it, well, okay. All right.
0: But, so, so hang on. So, I want to make sure we, we 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 cover this. The so with the with the GDPR. So, explain the what kind of notice and takedown provisions are are in the draft right now.
2: Yeah. Well, let me start with why the intermediary has way more incentive to just comply and take anything sure. down than under the existing systems. One is. The standard for when a claim is legitimate is completely unclear. you know, just as unclear as it was under the Costeja ruling for Google. Um, and two is, if you get it wrong, the penalties that can be assessed against you are tremendous. It's sort of, it, it varies from draft to draft, but at the high end, there are penalties for noncompliance generally that can go up to 5% of a company's annual global turnover or 100 million euros, whichever is greater. <laughs> oh, wow. So you know, do you want to go to bat for some speech that some user put on your hosting platform at that risk, or do you want to just take it down? Wow.
0: Yeah, I mean, at, th- at those rates, I mean... That's incredible.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's not great, um, and and then beyond that, the GDPR. Perhaps inadvertently, I, I think something funny happened in the drafting, but it spells out details of the takedown procedure that are just really at odds with what we're used to in the U.S. or Europe or anywhere that I know of. One of the the standout things is what the draft calls restriction, which is the idea that before you permanently delete the content, you take it offline while you make up your mind, and intermediaries are supposed to, you know, as soon as the email comes in saying, hey, that content's about me, take it down. They're supposed to take it down <laughs> right away, take right. it offline, and then go back and, you know, consider whether there's some so reason it's, the claim's illegitimate, sh- maybe put it back and, up. and
0: investigate later.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it shifts the default from a presumption that the speech is legal unless someone proves otherwise to a presumption that it's illegal as soon as anybody complains about
1: it. Right. Are, are, you, allowed to, are you allowed to leave up a page that says there used to be a Piece of content here about this person, <laughs> which then leads right. It's like then you can like like there was something here about Mike, but if you were to look for it, maybe you can what? find it if you look harder.
2: Uh, I think you would get in trouble if you <laughs> yeah. did that. So
1: but,
0: right because <laughs> yeah. with with the original right to be forgotten, ruling yeah. originally what Google did was it would put notes on the bottom, right. ba- basically saying like information. I think information may have been removed from this yeah, search or something think, to that. But then, and then people complained about that. Uh, and, and then Google yeah, switched to a point where basically any time it thought you were searching on a name yeah. in Europe... No matter whose name and whether or not anything had happened, whether any information had been taken down, he would put that same note at the bottom to and everything, to every every name, oh, I see. every
1: everything that so like like people Peen- Peanuts fo- may have been used in this uh, food facility or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. sort
0: of like that, <laughs> and then but then people complained about that, and they claim that that's unfair as well, and that's still <laughs> kind of uh, an open question. So you're not even allowed to talk about what Europe makes you do as
3: a company on well, your webpage. You can't even say that.
2: You you're not allowed to talk about who the person is because w- right. you know what they did is they said please stop processing information about me and yeah. if your response is hey i'm going to tell everyone your name and that you requested a removal well that sounds like more processing of information about you know there, there are arguments you can make <laughs> under data protection law but it's it's yeah. messy and you might and, lose and and of
0: course it's also gotten weird where where there have been situations where you know, then uh, you know because Google is informing publications that that their content's been removed, but won't provide any more information. So we've gotten a few notices, for example. And it's not that hard to then look at yeah. you know what stories were removed and figure out, who was the most likely complainer, and we we had this situation where we wrote a story where you know we named the person who almost certainly had originally had complained about the New York Times article, The New York Times had published the thing about it. We wrote about that, then he asked Google to remove our article about mm-hmm. the New York Times article, and that got removed, and we got notified again and so we wrote another article <laughs> and just kind of went down this chain, saying like you know and, and my argument was like you know okay, fine, if we're going to accept that he can remove the original article about this guy getting yeah. ar- arrested for fraud you know 10 years ago 12 years ago that's one thing. But he shouldn't then also be able to remove articles that figured out that he also made a request to be, for the right to be forgotten, because that is that is relevant information. <laughs> but not everyone agrees. Not right?
2: everyone agrees. So it's, <laughs> UK regulators do not necessarily agree. Right.
0: But thankfully, I'm based here in the US, and I may not be traveling to the UK anytime soon. <laughs> so an interesting
3: thing about uh, regulations like that in the United States is you will usually see... Uh, a constituency on both sides of sort of the debate. There'll be some commercial interests on this side pushing for liberal rules and maybe another constituency pushing for stricter rules. So who are the two sides in in that battle over there in the European Union?
2: Well, I don't think there's been much of a battle on this because everybody has seen this as a piece of legislation about privacy. And so people are out there wrangling for how the privacy r- provisions are going to work. And this notice and takedown part has been pretty stealth. Like, uh, people have not focused on it very much.
0: And that's why we're doing this podcast. <laughs>
3: yeah, well, I'm really surprised that, like, Google and Facebook and stuff wouldn't be on top of it. Or YouTube, I mean...
2: Well, I mean, if you look at the other the data transfer provisions, Mm -hmm. the will there be a so-called one-stop shop where you just deal with a regulator in one country versus every country in the EU. There are these issues that are going to be massively consequential for big companies doing business in Europe. So I think they inevitably you know, that's their priority list if they're looking for, um, what's worth changing about the GDPR. I also think, you know, it took me an incredible amount of time to piece this together and even see what was happening. So you have to have somebody motivated with time who knows both data protection and intermediary liability to even piece this together.
3: Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that when the, when the, you know, chips actually shake out that, that, um, the way that they will interpret these rules could go off in some rogue tangent.
2: Definitely. I mean, it's a criticism many people raise about the whole GDPR is it is full of ambiguities that effectively give the regulators discretion to say what the law is. And that's certainly true of the notice and takedown part. What could go wrong? (laughs) What could go wrong?
3: I I think we had a whole podcast about how too much... Too much yeah. power with the regulators; it can be bad. <laughs> so,
0: um, so we're we're we've gone a little bit over on on our normal amount of time, but it's a really interesting discussion. And and I know we're having you back again uh, next week for another pro- another podcast. We may dip back into some of these subjects. So I don't think we covered everything that that we wanted to cover. But um, just to, as a sort of conclusion, what's what's the kind of timeline on on this?
2: So the the draft is supposed to be finalized by the end of December mm-hmm. um, and then pass into law, and there's a two-year period before it goes into effect. So the old law stays in effect for, for two years. But the, the other thing, not to go too much over, but the other <laughs> thing that's happening is there, there's this digital single market inquiry in Europe that is expressly right. about intermediary liability. If that leads to a change in the intermediary liability laws well, what's the latest model of something that the legislator said was okay? It's this thing in the GDPR. So there's a real risk of um, this seeping out into copyright and notice and takedown. down and-
0: into, into other areas, yeah. And that, yeah, the, the um, intermediary liability consultation is a, a whole other mess that I've, I've been digging into and should have some posts on TechDirt soon. <laughs> or by the time this goes up, maybe I'll already have had some stuff up. But um, anyways, yes, so this is, this is a big concern. Not enough people are paying attention to it. Uh, if you're listening to this, start paying attention to it. I think is that is that our, our summary? Exactly. <laughs> all right. Uh, and thank you very much, Daphne, for joining us. Thank and, you, Mike. Uh as mentioned, uh, we're, we're gonna have you stick around and be back again for another podcast next week. And uh, we hope that all of you listening uh, also enjoy this and we'll be back next week as well. So Goodbye. thank you. If
1: we don't sound up to them someone and pick up the if we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the cat